Welcome and bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Raisin. But first, how are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. Look, I want to be brutally honest up top. Normally, I save all of the promotional material for the end of the podcast, but perhaps you're the sort of person who just skips over any promotional material. I do that every now and then while listening to my favorite podcasts. But I want to promote the show here. I want to really emphasize how our listenership, I'm being brutally honest here, our listenership has absolutely absolutely plateaued and I need your help. I need the listener's help to ensure that that does not continue, that our audience continues to expand. So I have a couple of urgent requests for you, okay? I have never, I have never been more eager to say this in my life and I really need you to follow through, okay? If you're a fan of the show, you can help us expand the listenership in a couple of key ways. If you listen to the show and you follow us on Twitter, at Musical Man Pod, please take a moment every single Wednesday to retweet every post about new episodes. New episode posts are crucial to our social media platform on Twitter. So retweet those, share those, tell people that you love the show via Twitter. Tell people that you love the show via Apple Podcasts. Please, we very rarely see brand new reviews via Apple Podcasts. If you are listening to the show via that platform, take a moment to write a five-star review. If you're a fan of the show, you should be expressing that fandom, that sentiment, that that enthusiasm. So that is the second way you can help to promote the show. And the third way, and this is this involves a little bit of a financial commitment on your part, but I would love to expand the Patreon listenership as well. So please consider becoming a patron of the Musical Man. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out which of our tiers best suits you. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. And as a reminder, all of that money, none of that money goes into my pocket. All of that money is redirected 100% of every single monthly payout via Patreon is donated to the Black Lives Matter organization. So I, of course, want to expand the listenership, but I also want to increase our support of this amazing organization. So that is the third and final way I would encourage you to be a supporter, a more active supporter of the show. Hey, maybe you've already done all three of those things. Well, to you, I say, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. It is so hard to drum up this sort of engagement for a podcast. It is very, very difficult. You know, I try to come up with all of these creative, clever ways to drum up that engagement, but I am just flat out putting myself out there, putting myself on the slab, (laughs) as it were. So please consider doing all of those, taking all of those tasks seriously. Get that done this week. I want to see some brand new reviews. I want to see some retweets on Twitter. But enough begging on my part. Begging! (laughs) 
<laughs> Hello, mister. Can we just get the show facts, Jonathan? Yes, show me the show facts for Raisin. You have asked for them, and so I will deliver them now. Raisin is based on Lorraine Hainsbury's enormously successful 1959 play, A Raisin in the Sun. Hainsbury was the first black woman playwright to have her work produced on Broadway, and the play's director, Lloyd Richards, was the first black artist to direct on Broadway. Shortly after Hainsbury's death in 1965, her ex-husband, Robert Nemiroff, began the development of this week's subject. Other notable adaptations of A Raisin in the Sun include the 1961 film, which starred several members of the original Broadway cast, two BBC radio plays from 1996 and 2016, and a pair of made-for-television films, the first which aired in 1989 as part of the PBS American Playhouse series, starred Danny Glover and was inspired by an off-Broadway revival at the Roundabout Theater. The second film, which aired on CBS in 2008, retained the cast of a 2014 Broadway revival, which included Sean Combs, Felicia Rashad, and Audra McDonald. Raisin was the 1974 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on October 18, 1973 at the 46th Street Theater before moving to the Lundfontaine Theater in January 1975. The show ultimately ran for 847 performances. The book was written by Robert Nemiroff and Charlotte Zaltzberg. The music was written by Judd Walden, and the lyrics were written by Robert Britton. The director, Donald McHale. To review, this adaptation of a black woman's play was written by a largely, if not entirely white and majority male team, and directed by a black artist. I'm going to pump the brakes on my recitation of my of my notes, because I have a gigantic asterisk, a footnote that I have to address. Now, I just said that this show was written by a largely, if not entirely, white team. You heard me say that, yes? But I don't actually know. Uh, see, my instinct is that this show was written by an entirely white team, but I could be completely wrong in that instinct. In that gut instinct of mine, I could be completely wrong. So if you have any information regarding Regarding Robert Britton specifically, I cannot find any information about Robert Britton online to save my life. This individual is a ghost. And I don't want to make any real crazy broad assumptions. I don't want to make any ridiculous declarative statements that would only put me in a corner and get me in trouble in the future because I don't want to speak about people that I don't know anything about. And for all I know, Robert Nemiroff or Charlotte Zaltzberg or Judd Walden, any of these people could be biracial. So this this, this really speaks to the messiness of research and the messiness of analysis, especially. I have to acknowledge my limitations as a researcher, as an analyst, as a white person myself. So I just want to put that out there. My statement is has its own qualifiers, okay? This statement has a gigantic qualifier on top of it, is what I really should be emphasizing here, and I think I have. And so with that gigantic asterisk, that footnote addressed, let us keep Keep moving, okay? Let us keep moving. I am making some assumptions here. I could be wrong. And just, again, if you have information that would go against what I am saying, I am always more than willing to hear it and share it here on the podcast, musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Hey, that's another way you could support the show. Just send me nice emails. Send me emails telling me that you like the show. That helps me too. <laughs> helps helps if you tell me that you like the show or if you want to help the show be better because you have more information send it send it i am repeating myself ad nauseum okay so let's start from the top here to review this adaptation of a black woman's play was written by a largely if not entirely uh, maybe yes no maybe yes white and majority male team and directed by a black artist. This would put Raisin in the same company as Caroline or Change, which was written by Tony Kushner and Janine Tesori and directed by George C. Wolfe. Black voices and experiences rest at the center of both of these pieces, but the literal text is crafted by white artists. Thankfully, McHale and Wolf were in a position to oversee and influence their creative processes. A complete absence of black perspective on the production side would have been a terrible mistake, and it gives me pause, great pause, to remember just how often that mistake is made. You can see why my gut instinct would tell 
tell me that this show was written entirely by white people because that happens a lot. We saw it in Jamaica. Huh? We saw it in Jamaica. <laughs> That was only a couple of weeks ago. Jamaica will come up again during this analysis of Raisin. You can bet on that. But let's keep going. Let's get these show facts, the rest of these show facts, I should say. The musical director of Raisin, Howard A. Roberts. The choreographer, Donald McHale. Scenic design, Robert U. Taylor. Lighting design, William Mincer. Sound design, N.A. No sound designer. Okay. Costume design, Bernard Johnson. And the original Broadway cast included... Actually, this is the full list. The full Full list is as such. Virginia Capers, Ernestine Jackson, Joe Morton, Deborah Allen, Ralph Carter, Robert Jackson, Helen Martin, Loretta Abbott, Elaine Beener, Chief Bay, Glenn Brooks, Walter P. Brown, Karen Burke, Paul Carrington, Herb Downer, Marilyn Hamilton, Don Jay, Eugene Little, Miranda Perry, Al Perryman, Zelda Pullum, Renee Rose, Ted Ross, Richard Sanders, Chuck Thorpe, and Gloria Turner. Tony nods. Okay, Raisin won. Best Musical, of course, the Tony Award for Best Musical, and it also won Best Actress in a Musical, Virginia Capers. The show was additionally nominated for Best Book of a Musical, Robert Nemiroff and Charlotte Zaltzberg. Best Original Score, Judd Walden and Robert Britton. Best Actor in a Musical, Joe Morton. Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Ralph Carter. Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Ernestine Jackson. Best Choreography, Donald McHale. And Best Direction of a Musical, Donald McHale. So, nine nominations in total, two awards at the end of the night. The story of Raisin concerns the triumphs and tribulations of the Youngers, who live on the south side of Chicago in 1951. Walter and Ruth are husband and wife, Travis is their teenage son, Lena is Walter's mother, and Benita is Walter's younger sister. Almost every member of the Younger family is eager to bust out of their small apartment, perhaps none more so than Walter. Years of working as a chauffeur have left Walter desperate to start a business of his own, and when his father dies, he views the hefty life insurance payout as a way out of the rat race. Walter's associates, Bobo Jones and Willie Harris, have already convinced him to go in on the development of a new liquor store. The time to move is now. There is just one problem. The life insurance money is controlled by Walter's mother, Lena, who is morally opposed to alcohol. Lena has other plans for the younger family, and when the money arrives, she uses a portion of it to make a down payment on a house. Walter is infuriated and flabbergasted by this decision, which would see the youngers moving into the all-white neighborhood of Clybourne Park. Walter vanishes in a fit of despair, and when Lena finds him at a local bar, she apologizes for dismissing his dreams. As an act of reconciliation, Lena gives her son the remainder of the life insurance money, asking that $3,000 be set aside for beneath his college education. The rest can be used in whatever way Walter sees fit. Issues resolved, the youngers begin to pack up the apartment in advance of their move to the new house. But... When a white man named Carl Linder appears on their doorstep, the situation is thrown into a harsh new light. Carl, a representative of Clybourne Park, offers to buy the house back from Lena, ostensibly so the all-white neighborhood won't have to deal with the presence of a black family. Walter and Ruth are unsurprised by this transparent gambit, and the youngers initially turn Carl away. Shortly thereafter, Willie arrives to announce that Bobo has run off with the money that was meant for the liquor store. Walter is devastated. Despite Lena's wishes, he did not set aside anything for Benita's education, and the family is now essentially broke. It would seem the only way to move forward is to accept Carl Linder's offer, and though Though Benita chastises her brother for caving in the face of pressure, Lena chooses to stand by her son. But when Carl shows up with the paperwork, Walter has a sudden and momentous change of heart. The Youngers will be moving to Clybourne Park after all, and there's nothing that can stop them. There are two other characters you should be aware of before we close out this plot summary. The first is Joseph Asagai, an African exchange student who has been dating Benita and teaching her about African culture. The second is Mrs. Johnson, a neighbor of the Youngers, who openly criticizes their 
their decision to move to Clybourne Park. Mrs. Johnson was actually cut from Lorraine Hainsbury's original play for the sake of trimming the runtime, though she serves as an important counterpoint to characters like Benita and Joseph. Unlike many members of the younger generation, Mrs. Johnson is convinced that any attempt at black upward mobility will only result in violence, going so far as to joke that the youngers will likely die in a bombing one month after they set up house. Mrs. Johnson has no problem speaking her mind. Okay, that's the plot summary of Raisin. Now let's talk about what I listened to this week, what I watched this week. For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1973 original Broadway cast album, and I watched the 1974 Tony Awards performance of Sidewalk Tree and A Whole Lot of Sunlight. The decision to showcase Ralph Carter and Virginia Capers via their respective character solos feels strategic and practical. Are we capitalizing on the Good Times viewership by putting Ralph Carter out front? Sure. His sitcom co-star Esther Rowley introduces his performance. True, Good Times aired on CBS, and The Tonys aired on ABC in 1974, but we were clearly banking on cross-pollination here. Are we featuring Capers because of her Tony nomination? Obviously, it only makes sense to do so. She's fantastic, I don't mind saying. This is absolutely an instance where the performer is elevating the song and not the other way around, or a situation where the two are in perfect harmony. I doubt anyone could raise a whole lot of sunlight to the heights Capers achieves here as her earth-shaking vocals and supreme confidence do more to sell the number than the music and lyrics ever could on their own. See also Brian Stokes Mitchell and Audra McDonald in Ragtime. But beyond the strategies and practicalities, there is a good amount of comfort that comes with watching Carter and Capers perform side by side. It's great to see this young kid and an old pro standing as equals in their personal spotlights. It's less a passing of the torch and more like a joyous cohabitation. Capers was hardly a battle axe in 1974, I should say. She was 43 when Raisin premiered, and the dusty gray founding father's wig resting on her head does little to distract from this fact. That is no grandmother. That is no grandmother. Another Tony's adjacent observation for you, the original production of A Raisin in the Sun featured a cast of 11, whereas Raisin boasted a cast of 26. This might lead you to suspect the musical is a more blown-out version, a blockbuster version of Hainsbury's intimate family drama. But that isn't true at all, not from what I can tell. Raisin's ensemble is only employed to a limited degree. Their presence is never ham-fisted, and nearly all of the songs are ground level duets or character solos like the ones featured in this Tony's clip. I appreciate that. A Raisin in the Sun is a small-scale play about big issues and big emotional reckonings, and that is what Raisin needed to be if it was going to honor Hainsbury's play. TLDR, I'm glad they went with solos over a group number like He Come Down This Morning. I'm all about championing as many cast members as possible, get those actors on TV, but I'm also all about selling shows accurately, a musical that is primarily about people facing their demons and facing off with each other one-on-one -on -one should be sold as such. For an example of a musical that did not sell itself well at the Tonys, see our Groundhog Day episode. For examples of musicals that don't know how to incorporate their ensembles into close-quarter narratives, please see our episode on The Goodbye Girl, or our Snub Club episode on Jason Robert Brown's The Bridges of Madison County.
Judd Wolden's Overture, which is officially credited as the show's prologue on the OBC album, produced a series of minor vibrations that moved through my body and left me totally at ease. I became fixated on the serene golden sunrise quality of that horn solo, and when the full orchestra kicked in, it was as if I'd been thrown onto the streets of Chicago in the midst of morning rush hour. Chris and I just watched The Taking of Pelham 123, which actually opened in theaters only a few weeks before Raisin premiered on Broadway in 1974. The Pelham score and this overture are very much operating in the same territory, a sea of warm brass waves that roll over and churn all around you. But let's be clear, while there may be a great deal of hustle and bustle in this opening track, Wolden's composition never spills over into chaos. Listening to the piece truly is like standing on a busy street in Chicago. You feel everyone moving around you, but there isn't a threat of being consumed by the great teeming crowd. You are simply a part of that crowd, and taking a moment to recognize that can be a thrilling experience. Of course, when you consider these qualities from a less optimistic perspective, say that of our lead character, Walter Younger, I can understand how that sea of sound would be a source of anxiety. Walter's issues stem from his desire to stand out in a world that would sooner dismiss and forget him. He doesn't want to be just another face in the crowd of Chicago. He wants to rise above it and be recognized for the capable man he knows himself to be. Speaking of Walter and his troubled relationship with masculine ideals, let's transition into our next song, Man Say. A actually, no. I have to give it up for that horn solo one more time. It has a my time of day is the dark time coloring to it. And I am a fan. This cannot be emphasized enough. All right, now let us transition into our next song, Man Say. Man Say, when the chance comes by, win or lose, gotta try. That boy sleeping in the living room needs living room to grow. Is this gonna be all he'll ever know? Well, honey, you never say nothing new. So you'd rather be Mr. Arnold than be his chauffeur. So I'd rather be living in Buckingham Palace. And I'm telling you, this ain't no fly-by-night proposition. We got a partnership. Walter, will you eat your eggs? Man, say, look out. Don't try to slow me down. Here come a giant 50-foot high. of the school. Now, look, your mama don't want you taking no risks with that money. Risks? Here I'm talking to you about me, about us, and all you got to say is, oh, damn, my eggs. Now, damn all the eggs that ever was. Then get dressed and go to work. There's the answer I've been looking for. It's clear as clear can be. The great I'll eat what's been laid specially for me. Man Say is the first of three consecutive songs in Raisin that include the word man in their titles. The second entry in that trio, Who's Little Angry Man, a solo sung by Ruth Younger to her son, Travis. The third is Runnin' to Meet the Man, a group number about the people of Chicago heading into yet another grind of a workday. All things considered, it's clear Raisin is investing a lot of time and energy into the theme of masculinity. This makes sense as Hainsbury's original play spends just as much time meditating on Walter's relationship with masculinity. Walter is a black man living in Chicago in 1951. He believes it is his duty to provide and set an example for his family because he is the quote-unquote man of the house. 
But how do you maintain that king of the castle mentality when the man, aka systemic white supremacy, is constantly chipping away at your dignity? If you're Walter, you take it out on the women in your life, as heard here in the number man say. And look, I empathize with Walter, completely. I see him as an imperfect human being who is trying in his own stubborn way to do what's best for the people he cares about. But I am on Ruth's side in this scene. If I am in her shoes and I am making Walter a plate of eggs, he had better eat those goddamn eggs. Ruth's work, classified here as women's work, is not a series of domestic trivialities that are meant to distract from Walter's big manly plans. Women are not working alongside the man to undermine the Walters of the world. Listen to your wife and eat the damn eggs, Walter. Can we talk about what Joe Morton is doing with this song, by the way? Has there ever been a voice like that of Joe Morton? He is routinely tearing these notes wide open, and I wind up seeing spots as a result. This is amazing work. And I admire what Morton is doing here in terms of tone. We need to believe Walter loves Ruth and doesn't actually view her as a problem. This is a bark is worse than his bite guy we're talking about here, so if you warp him into a bully, we'll never have the ability to care about him. Joe Morton's version of Walter isn't a bully, he is simply a grown man who still needs to grow up. And that's a character journey I can invest in. I'm all about including a number for Walter, Willie, and Bobo that celebrates their newfound partnership, but Booze is not that number. This isn't rooted in story. This is a novelty song that would have been cut from Bubbling Brown Sugar. I would have made a comparison to Ain't Misbehavin', but nothing from that show ever felt this trivial. I'm simply not interested in a list song. I don't need to hear 20 different synonyms for booze. Tell me about Willie and Bobo. What are their plans? What is their dynamic with Walter like? What we needed in this moment was something along the lines of the oldest established from Guys and Dolls. The oldest established puts a spotlight on three scrappy, street-level associates who are moving heaven and earth to secure a small fortune. That is exactly what Walter, Willie, and Bobo are doing, and the composers should have explored the truth of that moment. We can have fun while also honoring these characters and their situation. It can be done. When an everyday look had a meaning so real That without
I'm not gonna lie, this has been an exhausting week for me, okay? Between my day job and the daily news cycle, I was totally wrung out and devoid of motivation. And truth be told, it takes quite a bit of energy to put this podcast together every week. It's not easy. Despite my naturally compulsive tendencies, I love a list. (laughs) There are moments when I wish life wasn't an endless series of tasks. Do this, do that, da-da-da-da. I'm sure we can all relate to this sentiment. Life, am I right? Life in October 2020, am I right? Wearisome stuff sometimes. What I always forget about when I'm stumbling around like a zombie is the power of intimacy. Chris is always within arm's reach, and he has this amazing ability to make me feel like a human being again. I would like to think I do the same for him, but you have to come out of the trenches on your own accord. You have to set the chores of life aside and look your partner in the eye before they can work that magic on you. If Chris is roughing it in the weeds, all I can do is remind him that I will be here when he decides to call it a day. I will be here for the hugging and the kissing and the head scratching, and everything will be okay again because intimacy is a restorative force. At a certain point in their marriage, Walter and Ruth forgot about each other. He became engaged in personal grudges, and every ounce of her energy was dedicated to keeping their house afloat. The burdens of life simply got in the way. But sweet time is all about rediscovery. I enjoy listening to Ernestine Jackson and Joe Morton on this track because they sound so physically close, as if they are whispering to each other while laying in bed. There is quite a bit of highly theatrical history hysteria on this OBC album, as we will come to find in a moment, and I'm grateful to have this quietly sublime track as a point of comparison. I'm also a fan of the instrumentals here, which sound fairly reminiscent of Burt Bacharach. A house is not a home, anyone? One less bell to answer, anyone? Huh? Son, I only tried to do what your father would have wanted. I could have showed you how to double that money. Son, why you talk so much about money? Because it's life, Mama! Oh, so money is life. Once upon a time, it was freedom. Freedom used to be life. Now it's money. It's always been money. We just didn't know it. That's all. Mama, look at me. I'm looking at you. You got a nice wife, a fine boy. You got a good job. A job, Mama! A job! I drive a man around in his limousine! Yes, sir, no, sir! Where'd you like to go, sir? Shall we take a drive? Oh, shall I take you home? Fast or slow, sir? Better let me know, sir! Shall I park? Is there a mark on the chrome? Yes, I know, sir, when you're in the door, sir, give me just a word and I obey. Yes, I know, sir, where'd you like to go, sir? How'd you like to go to hell today? Walter You want to hear me say, you done right. <laughs> All right, you done right, and you're smart, we agree, you done right, you done me right out of my dreams tonight. Listening to You Done Right, I had to take a moment and interrogate myself a bit, which is something I often do when sorting through our weekly subjects. I did a lot of it right up top in our opening show facts segment. I knew the song wasn't working for me. You Done Right was not working for me, but why? Why? Well, on one level, I simply wasn't in the mood to hear Walter scream at his mother, Lena, about a decision that was entirely hers to make. I did not necessarily need four minutes of largely petulant verbal abuse in my ears, but 
At the same time, I accept that anger and grief are enormous motivators for this character, so it's not as if I can't appreciate the stakes at play. The problem, I suspect, is Joe Morton's performance. Morton has a remarkable vocal range. He can bellow with the best of them in a number like Man Say, or lay out the Velveteen when singing alongside Ernestine Jackson. And all of that is wholly authentic and passionate and lived in. I have no complaints. But when it comes to expressing Walter's fury, Morton hits a wall. The bellowing and the hissing, the ranting and the caterwauling, these are the choices of your average theater student, not an actor who is truly comfortable playing a dramatic scene. An actor must be able to pull from a well of security and strength, especially when playing a moment of weakness, of despair, and volume is no substitute for security or strength. The longer you sit on that end of the dial, the more likely I am to tune you out. I realize you done right is an unsettled bit of composition just on the page. You have to swing for the fences to a certain extent. Ah, okay, but there's no need to take it this far. Take it from me. Take it from me. The college theater student, the former college theater student, who frequently thought howling and twisting his body into knots would make for effective stage work. Sidewalk tree Hanging Sidewalk Tree calls to mind Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and Schoolhouse Rock, the sort of contemplative 1970s programming for kids that John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch so effectively honored back in 2019. I am a huge sucker for kids who ponder their place in the world, and Ralph Carter's direct, sweet-as-pie performance put me square in his corner. Travis Younger is old enough to recognize that change is inevitable, but young enough to hope that life will remain the same forever. He doesn't want to move. He doesn't want to say goodbye to this beautiful tree that has always been a part of his landscape. And Travis, 
I am right there with you. The game should not change once you know the rules and you have your footing. It's only fair. This song is great. We all go to church. We all go to church. We applaud the NAACP. Alina Horn's a joy. Oh, and that Bella Bonte boy. Oh, boy, I wouldn't mind him living next door to me. Everybody, we live on a friendly street. Everyone knows who they'll meet. Everyday folks behind every door. Prepared to pay just to keep it all that way. You never hear a shout. Anymore is a song written by white people for black people that involves black people making fun of white people, specifically the sort of holier-than-thou, loud-mouthed white liberal who claims they don't have a racist bone in their body. I'm not racist. Far from it. I am merely saying it would be nice if black people did not move into our neighborhood. It's not like I'm bringing lemon squares to the Klan picnic anymore. I haven't gone to those in years. This brand of self-deluding racism is exhausting, destructive, and ripe for satire, but white people are in no real position to effectively satirize themselves. Again, all of this commentary is predicated on the instinctual idea that this show was written by an entirely white team. I could be entirely wrong on that, and this commentary could be completely negated in the future. Okay. <laughs> we just want to make sure that that is clear. So, white people are in no position to effectively satirize themselves, huh? I'm glad Donald McHale was in the director's seat for this process, but at the end of the day, he is not the one hammering out the words and the notes that will be delivered by this black cast. That work fell to white people, and what was the fruit of their labor? A fairly shallow exercise in softball politicking that has no real intention of skewering anyone too harshly. This song was not written for the black people in the audience. This was 100% written for white people who love to nod. Here is a great example. Late into the number, the Youngers make a sneering reference to Lena Horne and Harry Belafonte, painting them as easily digestible icons for whites who are desperate to appear enlightened. I have to question if this pointed jab reflected or reflects any actual perspective found within the black community. Are you saying Lena Horne and Harry Belafonte did not have black fans? Well, that kind of sounds like bullshit, doesn't it? Virginia Capers was an understudy in Jamaica with Lena Horne on Broadway, another musical authored by white artists for black artists. I highly doubt Capers or anyone else would have marked Lena Horne as a for-whites-only entertainer, so why don't you take her name out of your mouth, writers? She doesn't deserve that, and neither does Harry Belafonte. Uh, we're not making fun of them. We're making fun of their white fans. Take their names out of your mouth. That does it for our deconstruction of the Raisin score, and now we are going to hear from our fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. 5678 Coffee, take one. Action. Ooh, go now. Action. In the morning, I drink a cup, and it makes me feel manly. Feel manly? Cut. Isn't that feel manly? Can you read that right? Yeah. Then let's go again. Well, excuse me. Uh, you know, I know I said it wrong, but it really don't make me feel manly. I mean, uh, do you think this stuff tastes like a man? Uh, I say absolutely no. Are you finished? I'm sorry. Okay, rolling again. Nice and quiet. Speed. Five, six, seven, eight, coffee, take two. Action! In the morning, I drink a cup, and it surrounds my mouth with glass. Cut! Action! Hey, and uh, five, six, seven, eight, coffee will turn the women 
into Beast. Cut! Action! If you want to be the king of the beast and drink coffee like a jungle rat, uh, cat, uh, cat, right? Uh, they look a little alike. Action! <clears throat> In the afternoon, when I drink it, while I'm out with the guys, and I have a rendezvous. Cut! Cut! We're cutting this set. We're going to the alternate set. Yeah, I can get it, you know. I'm sure you can. Will you get out of the yeah, cage? Rendezvous. Yes, rendezvous over to the other set, if you don't mind. Sure. We've only wasted four hours. Arthur, let's reorganize here. We're going to the alternate set. Get him out of the costume. Get the damn club away from him. And get the girls into their other outfits. Where is the wardrobe, people? Where yeah, are You know, it sounded great inside before it come out like that. All right, wet him down. Arthur, step out, please. Speed. Five, six, seven, eight, coffee. The contender, take seven. Try to get it right. Action. Hey, my name is Rocky Balboa, the Italian stallion. They say I'm the American dream, but not because... Can I do it over again? Christ, cut. No, just keep it rolling. Keep it rolling. Just read it off the dummy cards. Dummy cards? Please, go on. Wait a minute. I'd like to explain something. Uh, You know, I ain't punchy. I got what you call, like, I don't know, a relaxed brain, but I ain't punchy. You know, it's just the way I talk here. What's the difference? Can we, can you just do it the way it's written? Well, that ain't right. Uh, This whole thing ain't right, you know. What isn't right? Well, you're a rude guy. I'm trying very hard and you're being rude. That's bad manners. Ain't it, Adrian? Yes. Uh, But I tell you, I gotta be almost punchy to be doing this in front of my wife. You wanna quit? Then quit. Leave! Get out of here! I didn't want you for this setup in the first place. You have wasted, wasted our time, sir. This is a complete bust this whole afternoon. Leonard, Leonard, where are you going? I want you to take him with you, Leonard. Take this man with you. He is not a professional. I only work with professionals. You cost us thousands of dollars because you can't read. thoughts regarding Raisin. You know, it's always disappointing when a musical that's meant to showcase performers of color proves to be incapable of honoring the talent of those performers. Raisin is by no means a disaster. I feel like I say that every week. (laughs) Raisin is by no means a disaster. There are a handful of bright spots, but let's be real. White people do not know what it means to be black and live in America. They never have, and they never will. And I'm sure Donald McHale did his best to lend this show as much authenticity as possible. But writers can't fake experience, and when your material is not informed by experience, it is destined to feel broad and largely anonymous. I can only imagine what someone like Mickey Grant of Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope would have done with a musical adaptation of a raisin in the sun. I am sure it would have been a hell of a lot more exciting. Again, the only reason Carolina Change really works is that show is about a black family and a white family coming together, meeting in the middle, and sharing experiences. So I was more more willing to give that overall team some slack. I, I understood where maybe that team was coming from in, it, in terms of its design, its composition. The putting together of those people made more sense to me. This doesn't really, this doesn't work as well for me overall. I know I I tried to say that they were on equal footing these two shows, Raisin and Carolina Change. I said as much in our show facts, but I do believe Carolina Change represents a better mold, a melding, a melding together of different perspectives and different sets of experiences. Raisin is completely, it is 100% about a black family. There are very few white characters outside of Carl Linder, I believe is the only key white character in the entire show. This is solely focused on black perspectives and voice and experiences, and we should have done a much better job. We should have put more effort into ensuring that the writing itself was rooted in experience. Okay, then again, who am I to say if Raisin is authentic or not? Huh? I am white. If black audiences did or do find value in this piece, 
Who am I to dismiss that? No one, nobody. As I said, analysis is an imperfect and messy process that is dogged by biases. Any of my commentary could be upended at any moment. I'm fine with that. Now, in 1974, as a reminder, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was Raisin, and the additional nominees for Best Musical that year were Over Here and Seesaw. I have exactly zero reference for these other shows, so it could be anyone's game in terms of who deserved, quote-unquote, to win the Tony Award for Best Musical. For all I know, Over Here is amazing. For all I know, Seesaw is amazing. Maybe both of them are better than Raisin. I don't know. We'll find out in the future. Let's rank Raisin again all of the other musicals we've talked about here on the podcast. Now, as a reminder, if you follow us on Twitter, at MusicalManPod, and you're interested in seeing the list of all of the shows that we have covered and how they rank against each other, follow us on Twitter, at MusicalManPod, go to our likes page, the top tweet on that likes page is a Google Sheet. Click through, you will be directed to the Google Sheet, go to the second tab, not the first, not the third, even though those are great tabs, but the second tab is where you're going to find this ranking information. Okay, so where does Raisin fall on this list? Well, I am placing Raisin at number 45 on our list, between Once at number 44 and The Wild Party at number 46. I have one change to the list that I would like to announce, only one. I have moved Nice Work If You Can Get It to our number 48 slot. Okay, now you have the updates. Let's talk about show-related ephemera. I found a really great speech from Lorraine Hainsbury. She delivered this speech on June 15th, 1964 at a New York City town hall meeting. This is an amazing uh, section of this speech, and it says much more, so much more about Hainsbury's work and our past, present, and future as an American society. It says more about all of those topics than Raisin ever could. So let's get that audio now. I wrote a letter to the New York Times recently, which didn't get printed, (laughs) which is getting to be my rapport with the New York Times. They said that it was too personal. What uh, What it concerned itself with was I was in a bit of a stew over the stall in. Because when the stalling was first announced, I said, oh my God, now everybody's gone crazy and tying up traffic. What's the matter with, you know, who needs it? And then I noticed the reaction, starting in Washington and coming on up to New York among what we're all here calling the, the white liberal circles, which was something like, you know, you Negroes act right or you're going to ruin everything we're trying to do. You know? <laughs> that got me to thinking more seriously about the strategy and the tactic that the Stalin intended to accomplish. And so I sat down and wrote a letter to the New York Times. I am of a generation of Negroes that comes after a whole lot of other generations. And my father, who was, you know, real American type American, successful businessman, uh, very civic minded and so forth, was the sort of American put a great deal of money, a great deal of his really extraordinary talents, and a great deal of passion into everything that we say is the American way of going after goals. That is to say that he moved his family into a restricted area where no Negroes were supposed to live, and then proceeded to fight the case in the courts all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. This is the way of struggling that everyone says is the proper way to do, and it eventually uh, resulted in a a decision against restrictive covenants, which is very famous, Hansberry versus Lee. But the problem is that Negroes are just as segregated in the city of Chicago now as they were then. My father died a disillusioned exile in another country. That is the reality that I am faced with when I get up and I read that some Negroes my own age and younger say that we must now lie down in the streets, tie up traffic, stop ambulances, do whatever we can, take to the hills if necessary with some guns, and fight back, you see. Can't you understand that this is the perspective from which we are now speaking? It isn't as if we got up today and said, you know, what can we do to irritate America? You know, it's because that since 1619, Negroes have tried every method of communication 
of transformation of their situation, from petition to the vote, everything. We've, all, we've tried it all. There isn't anything that hasn't been exhausted. Isn't it rather remarkable that we can talk about a people who were publishing newspapers while they were still in slavery in 1827, you see? They've been doing everything, writing editorials, Mr. Wexler, for a long time, uh, you know. And now the charge of impatience is simply unbearable. I would like to submit that the problem is that yes, there is a problem about white liberal. The problem is we have to find some way with these dialogues to show and to encourage the white liberal to stop being a liberal and become an American radical. I think that then it wouldn't, when that becomes true, some of the really eloquent things that were said before about the basic fabric of our society, which, after all, is the thing which must be changed, you know, uh, to, to, to really solve the problem. You know, the, the, the basic organization of American society is the thing that has Negroes in the situation that they are in, and never let us lose sight of it. It is entirely different, you see, the way that you would assess the Vietnamese war and the way I would, because I can't believe... given what an American Negro is given, you know, our viewpoint can believe that a government which has at its disposal a Federal Bureau of Investigation which cannot ever find the murders of Negroes and by that method never, no, and shows that it cares really very little about American citizens who are black really are over somewhere fighting a war for a bunch of other colored people, you know. Uh, you just have a different viewpoint. This is, this is why we want the dialogue, to, to explain that to you. Radicalism is not alien to this country, neither black nor white. And we have a very great tradition of white radicalism in the United States. And I've never heard Negroes boo the name of John Brown. So there's no problem no matter how excited we get, I think ultimately anybody at this table who wants to read any patriot out of the Negro movement, it's not the point. Some of the first people who have died so far in this struggle have been white men. And I, for one, would be prepared, I must say, an exception to anything said, to accept the leadership of a person who gives that much devotion as against someone who would exhibit the uh, traitorous characters of of, uh, say, a moist chambe. Uh, I don't think that we can decide ultimately on the basis of color. The passion that we express should be understood, I think, in that context. We want total identification. It's not a question of reading anybody out. It's, it's a merger, but it has to be a merger on the basis of true and genuine equality. And if we think that it isn't gonna be painful, we're mistaken. I know that you, for instance, are an admirer of our late president. And he presumed, with all respect to the dead, I, but he happens to have been our president, so I have to talk about him that way, uh, to have suggested to the world that if our foreign policy were not honored with regard to Cuba, that we would blow up the world, you see. And we live in a nation where everything which is talked about is talked about in terms of the fact that we are going to be the mightiest, the toughest, the roughest cats going, you know, in the whole world. And, and when a Negro says something about, I'm tired, I can't stand it no more, I want to hit somebody, you say that we're sitting here panting and ranting for violence, you know? It's not right. To determine which show we discuss next, we will need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the Random Number Generator, I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, The 12 O'Clock P.M. Murders. Oh, I assume that's a mystery show. Everyone ready? Then away we go.
Well, I suppose we had to talk about this show at some point. <laughs> we have landed in 1987. We have returned to the 1987 season. You'll recall we have already covered the winner from that season, which was Les Miserables. And now, next week, we're going to be talking about another nominee from that season. That show ran for 1,420 performances, and that show is Me and My Girl. I believe that this... Oh, goodness, I hope that this is the last... Gershwin, or is it Porter? This might be the last Porter review on our list. Oh my god, I complained about it. I believe in nice work if you can get it. I was dreading this, but we are going to do it. We're going to do it, baby. Gershwin, Porter, oh goodness. You know what? I'll do the research. I'll come back to you next week. We'll talk all about it. I'm sure I'll have my brain, my head screwed on tight. My head, I should say, screwed on tight when we meet next week. Okay, fantastic. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. Again, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Black Lives Matter organization. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. Let's talk about what you get in terms of bonus material and incentives from every single one of those tiers. If you donate $1 a month, you get Monday early access to all of our main feed episodes. You get them two days earlier than anyone else. It's true. You also get a verbal shout-out each and every week. So thank you for donating at least $1 a month. Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marques, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. I love adding names to that list, so consider becoming a dollar a month patron today. Get your name on that list, but we're not done with this tier. No, one dollar a month also gets you bonus episodes regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage musical Emma, a review of the online concert Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, and a review of of Hamilton via Disney+. Plus. We also have two new bonus episodes coming down the pike. On October 21st, we are dropping our episode on Documentary Now, Original Cast Album, Co-op. And on November 18th, we are dropping John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. <laughs> you also get We're Not Done, Season 1, 12 episodes of Radio Boy, for which I check in with myself and the non-musical theater canon songs that make me feel more like myself. And finally, you get the first four episodes, the first batch of M3, the movie Musical Man. Four episodes, 12 reviews. 12 reviews of movie musicals. Okay, so M3, the movie Musical Man is a special series for which I watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme, okay? I believe the first episode in this batch was the Stone Cold Classics trilogy. The second was the Go Off trilogy. The third was the Shiver Me Timbers trilogy. And the fourth was which just dropped recently, was the Tune Trilogy. That series will be returning in December. December 30th, I believe, is when our Holly Jolly Trilogy, uh-oh, our Holly Jolly Christmas Movie Musical Trilogy, for which I'm going to be reviewing Scrooge from the 1970s, Mrs. Santa Claus, starring Angela Lansbury, ever heard of her? And, of course, Anna and the Apocalypse, the zombie Christmas movie musical. Uh-oh. Now, $3 a month will get you everything I've already described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. You get season one, ten episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical deconstruction podcast, and you get a special one-off episode on the Netflix series Julie and the Phantoms. Five dollars a month will get you everything I've already described, plus you will get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. You want to hear me talk about a musical that was either nominated or won the Tony Award for Best Musical, and I haven't talked about it already? Well, make me talk about it. Make me talk about it. You also get All I Ask of You Season 1, 12 episodes. That is an advice podcast hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. And guess what? When this drops, when this Raisin episode drops on Wednesday, that is also the premiere date for Season 2 of All I Ask of You. You will get 12 brand new episodes on top of the first season. And that's amazing. We're going to be recording the first episode of Season 2 right after this session. I am so excited to be sitting down with the Phantom once more. But we're not done, okay? $5 a month also gets you access to our Broadway in Chicago review series, and it gets you access to... 
Shout About It, Volume 1. That is a special collection of 5, 6, 7, 8 ads and musical shoutouts from the first 25 episodes of the podcast. It's a collection of all those wonderful character moments. Finally, $10 a month will get you everything I've already described, plus Season 1, 12 episodes of The Snub Club, a special series for which we discuss Broadway musicals that were never, ever nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. They were snubbed. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts, again, take a moment to write a five-star review. When we get to 65-star reviews, we have 32 right now, when we get to 65-star reviews, I will release, via the main feed, a special episode on Disney's Zombies Trilogy. No, no, just the duology. There's only two films. Oh my goodness, if only there was a third film. (laughs) We could talk about that as well. If you're listening via Spotify or Stitcher or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com, thank you for streaming the show. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod. Don't forget to retweet all of those posts about brand new episodes and send me an email at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Tell me that you like the show. Thanks as always to Patty and Benny, my fantastic co-workers, my teammates, oh my support system. (laughs) They help me get this show together every single week. It's tough, but we do it, baby. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and Zach Little for our fabulous music. (laughs) You know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen, and good night.